Uh, we stand in him complete. And uh, we, we're glad you're here. My name is Justin, a pastor here at Peninsula Grace, one of the elders. And um, man, we just came off of an exciting weekend called Discipleship Weekend uh, over next door. We had a couple of brothers from Ohio come and talk about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and, and to follow him practically. And, and if you weren't able to make it or able to make it to all of the sessions, I invite you to go onto our church's YouTube page, Peninsula Grace, and there's a, a playlist called Discipleship Weekend. And we've got 10 different um, sessions, 10 different uh, topics that you can check out there online. Uh, just an amazing resource. Uh, grateful to be able to have that. Uh, so I would invite you to check that out. Um, we are, um, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 24 today. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew 24. The ESV version will be up on the screen. Uh, today's message is called The King is Coming. Now, uh, how many of you think, Ryan got us our hands up in the air, so we got the calisthenics down. How many of you think that we are currently living in the end times? Amen. We are currently living in the end times, that Jesus is probably coming back at any time now. I said, I think that he took a look around at 2020, and he's like, okay, that's enough. Right? Gabriel, tune up, buddy. Michael, my steed. It's go time. Uh, today, we're going to be reading one of the most difficult to, uh, chapters in the Bible to interpret been one of the most hotly debated chapters in the Bible, so this should be fun. Um, in the context of, of our study through Matthew, this comes in chapters 21 through 25 called the Clash of Kingdoms. And what we've seen in the first three chapters is that Jesus has declared um, judgment on the people of Israel, namely their leaders, for having rejected him as Messiah. Now, he, we've seen him pronounce judgment on the temple when he was flipping tables. We saw him judge the temple leaders last week. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And there's this logical flow that Matthew's laying out for us where we've first seen that that he's going to judge. This morning in chapter 24, we're going to see when the judgment is coming. And he's also going to remind them who told them about it in the first place. It proves that he is who he says he is. Is he correctly prophesies what's coming and we know there is a judgment to come for those who reject his mercy we see it over and over again in the old testament and we see that pattern to this day and so there's a context in matthew we need to keep in mind there's also a context in the jewish culture so we live in the west and in western culture we want things laid out in a logical order which to us means one event after another so when we when we tell each other stories we tell it in order. So if I want to tell you, to, th th this morning, I woke up, then I drank some coffee, thank you, Jesus, then I read my Bible so that I could stay awake, I already drank coffee, and then I came to church to preach to you all. Now, I will tell you that story in order, but Matthew, our author, is living in an Eastern culture, and for them chronology, in other words, the order of time, is not as important to them. It's not a priority. And you read the Old Testament prophecies and you see this. That's never how it worked. All the time, there'd be a prophecy that could point to something that was happening immediately, but then it would also point to something that was coming ahead. They call this an already, not yet. So, for example, many of us know this verse, a prophecy in Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And immediately you have a nativity scene in your mind, don't you? 
You're thinking about Christmas, that hundreds of years after Isaiah prophesied this, Jesus' birth fulfilled it. But there was also a more immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, and we see that right here in the context of Isaiah 7. He's talking to King Ahaz about one of the king's sons, and, and that his son would be a sign of more immediate judgment on the people of Israel. We often call this telescoping. In other words, a prophecy can be fulfilled, the same prophecy uh, could be referred to and be fulfilled over different periods of time. And so just like Grover, the philosopher of Sesame Street, would tell us, it could both be near and far. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I'll preach about Jesus, but I'll get applause for Grover. Y'all need to repent of that. If, if we read Matthew 24 as Westerners, which we are, it can be very frustrating and unclear. Jesus seems to be all over the place. Like, sometimes it seems like he's talking about the immediate, and then he's talking about far away. We can get Bible whiplash. But it's kind of like when you're, you know, when you're hiking a mountain, and, and you're exhausted, and you thought that you got to the peak, and then you get to the top of the mountain, and there's another peak, and you keep going, where is the top of this stinking mountain? Well, until you get to the actual top and look back, it's not clear. And it's often the, time, the same thing with prophecy. Until we look back with hindsight, it's unclear how all of this unfolds. Jesus in Matthew 24 is addressing God's judgment on the people of Israel and his coming fully as the king. Now, we need to have humble ears as we read this passage this morning. Because as Westerners and humans with limited brains in general, this is a confusing chapter. And I'm not going to purport that I have it all figured out. Scholars have been debating this. Guys who are much smarter than me have been talking about this, writing about this for centuries. But we want to say, Lord, what would you reveal to us today? What do we need to know? Would you make that clear to us? Let's start with why Jesus even addresses some of this in the first place. Matthew 24, we got your uh, bulletin. We got fill in the blanks for you. The disciples questions, the disciples questions. Verse one, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now this seems kind of random. They're just like, hey Jesus, the temple. Like where did that come from? Why is he pointing that out? Well, remember, everything's been going down in Jerusalem starting in chapter 21. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's flipping tables in the temple, which is in Jerusalem. The showdown with the Pharisees has been in Jerusalem, but they're not staying in Jerusalem. Matthew 21, 17 tells us they're staying in Bethany. Probably have cheaper hotels a little bit outside of the city. That's often the case. And so they're, they're Roman. They're on this road from Jerusalem to Bethany that night. And there was this amazing view of the temple as they're walking. As they're walking along, they would have seen that temple, and they go, hey, Jesus the temple. But why did they even point that out? Well, if you look at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus makes this kind of weird statement in verse 38. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Uh, he says the house, he's talking about the temple. He says, the temple is left to you desolate. And they're going, uh, Jesus, the temple does not look desolate to us, right? It's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. How could this thing be desolate? Well, Jesus responds in verse 2, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here, temple, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He says, you see this temple? It's going down. It's going down for real. Now understand, for the disciples, Jesus just said the unthinkable. The temple, for the Jew, I, earlier in the first service, I channeled my inner planet Earth narrator voice, is the most sacred place on our planet. 
It says, the meeting place of God and man. In their mind, every other building would crumble and fall before the temple. This, this was the place where heaven and earth kissed. This is the place that God would interact with man. They're saying, surely this can't fall, Jesus. But Jesus has been trying to show them there is something better than the temple coming, isn't there? And he says, it's no longer going to be that you gather in a building. I am the fulfillment of this temple. And what did he say to Peter? Peter, on your pebble, I'm going to build this church. And church, we have become the church of the living stones. And he now dwells no longer in a building, but in us. He says, there's something better coming. And these stones, this way of coming to God, it is going to be finished. And Israel has failed to trust and obey Jesus as their God, as their Messiah, over and over. And it culminates here, culminates here with judgment. Now, for the Jew to hear that the temple is falling, this would be the end of the world as they knew it. And they are not, not going to feel fine. They cannot imagine a world without a temple. For them, this would be the end of the world. And so in verse 3, it says, He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, uh, Jesus, we have some follow-up questions about this temple thing being destroyed. And they ask him two main questions that we want to look at this morning. Tell us, number one, when will these things be? When will what be? The destruction of the temple. That's the immediate context. And here's the second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what in the world does that mean? What's the end of the age? What is his coming? That's what we want to unpack in this chapter. And remember, in their minds, this is all the same thing. If the temple is destroyed, it's all over, right? Judgment is here. Well, first of all, we want to look uh, at the coming of Jesus. Number two, the coming of Jesus. In verse three, it says, your coming. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Greek word here is parousia. And parousia, it means a presence, a coming, an arrival, or where we get our word advent. Remember, we celebrate at Christmas time, the first coming of Jesus is advent. In their culture, this word, it meant, and see, they were living, we're living in the Roman Empire in that, in that time, and so what would happen is um, the Caesar, who typically was hanging out in the capital in Rome, if he would leave the capital and come visit you, which was a big stinking deal, if he came to your place, if he arrived, this was called the parousia, the arrival, the revealing of the king in their presence. And the disciples want to know, when is that finally going to happen, Jesus? When are you finally going to fully reveal yourself as the king? Because remember, isn't that, that's Matthew's whole point. Jesus is here, he's the true king of Israel, and the whole world needs to know. The disciples in Israel are still waiting for the fulfillment of that prophecy. When he will rule the earth, literally, from a throne in Jerusalem. And everyone will bow the knee said, Jesus, you've just been petting lambs and, and preaching. When are you finally going to set up shop here and fully parousi, reveal yourself as the king? And they're still struggling to understand that that's got to happen after the death and resurrection. You see, we're looking from hindsight, right? We're looking at the top of the mountain down, and, and, and they didn't have some of the categories you and I have. The disciples in this moment didn't have the category of a second coming. Like you and I, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. But they didn't understand that. They're like, you're here. Let's get the kingdom going now. They did not understand that there would be a second coming. But as, as our theology develops over the course of the New Testament through Acts and then the New Testament writers, 
we see what we would now, when we refer to this parousia, this is kind of the definition that I would put together from what the New Testament talks about. This is the future visible return from heaven, God's space, of Jesus to raise the dead, hold the last judgment, and set up formally and gloriously the kingdom of God. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to reign on this, world, on this earth, amen? We look forward to that day. Undoubtedly, I believe, and we're going to skip ahead here to verse 29, I think in these three verses, Jesus is referring to this second coming. Not everybody agrees on that and has different ways of interpreting it, but you read verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, and we'll talk about that tribulation in the first 28 verses, after that tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear parousia, in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because judgment is upon us. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's hard for me to see how, unless you're totally taking that figuratively, that that's not yet to come when Jesus comes back and is fully revealed as the King. Now, there are different views on how this is all going down, and it can be a, a hotly, hotly debated issue. But listen, people can disagree on the end times and still follow the same Jesus, amen? I hope so. A lot of times we'll look at somebody, you don't believe in the rapture? Get behind me, Satan, you false prophet. Not a good way to interact with people in general. I just kind of want to point that out. But there are several important impl implications in this chapter. And, and what your view is can affect the way you live. And of course, we want to know what God says in his word. We want to rightly divide scripture, but we don't want to divide the church in the process. We want to major on the majors, and some of these are not necessarily the majors. Jen Wilkins said it well. She said the main issue is not when Jesus is coming back exactly, but that Jesus is coming and we know there's a day coming when every wrong will be righted, when Jesus will sit on his throne and we will rule and reign with him forever. Can't tell you when that is, but I can tell you that it is. And that's what gives us hope. In fact, he's going to underline with his disciples, not even I. Jesus says, I don't even know the day. But live as though it's tomorrow. Live it as though it's tomorrow. No, uh, number three, he's going to then and he's gonna tell us what that looks like. How do we live like it's tomorrow? Well, number three, we have an end-of-the-age how-to guide. So here we go. Uh, a, th three principles here. A, don't be deceived. Here's how Jesus responds to the disciples' question. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Don't be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He warns them. And, and this happens. We see both before and after Jesus. There are many who come claiming to be Israel's Messiah, the king. And they lead real revolutions against Rome or whatever powers would be at the time. And they free, they're trying to free uh, the Jews from oppression and restore the nation of Israel to its glory. And this is even happening to this day. Google it. There are people today claiming to be their Messiah, because, of course, the non-Messianic Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, Jesus says, don't be led astray. That's the wrong path. Stay the course with me. And this includes special revelations from God. Listen, if it doesn't line up with the Bible, 
If it doesn't point to Jesus, don't listen to it. 1 John 4 makes it very clear. If, if, the, if a spirit, if someone does not confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, tune it out. That is not the Christ. It's an antichrist. He says, don't be deceived. Stick with me. Then B, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted. I love what Charles Price says. I'm going to step on some toes here, so let's get ready. Some will distort the significance of great national and international events and place them in an end-time calendar to to indicate the imminence of the age. It's a lot of big words. What's he trying to say? What we'll do often is we'll see something big happen and then we will immediately connect it to a very specific prophecy and say, see, the Bible said that that was going to happen and that's what it was. Jesus is coming back in five minutes. You better buckle up. And we'll do this. Many, many have even done this with the coronavirus. In Revelation chapter 6, it says there's, there's these bowls coming and one of, these, one of, the, one of the bowls is a, these plagues that will come and go, see, it's a plague. Jesus is almost here. As though... We have not had one or two major pandemics every century since Jesus left. We don't want to have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Here's why. Don't be alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Do you see what he says here? Yes, things like wars will happen, but that doesn't mean that the end is here. He's giving the nor- listen, he's giving the normal ingredients of what is going to take place between his first coming and his second coming. He says it's going to get rough. And then in verse 7, he says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now again, every generation has experienced wars and famines and earthquakes. So a major war doesn't mean that Jesus is coming back next week. I've heard people say, our nation has never been as divided. Like, really? Like, we had a civil war. Like, does that not count? Like, I think it's pretty divided. Verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. He is saying these things are the beginning of the birth pains. And what do we know from birth? Joy is to come, but there's a painful process leading up to it. He says right now, it's going to be painful. But take heart because there's joy on the other side of it. It's all going somewhere. And what we often do is we attach significance to these clues, these, these current events, as though we can now know the exact time of Jesus' return when he says again himself, he doesn't even know when it's going to be. And these become decoys and distractions. And we start focusing on what we cannot know instead of focusing on what we do know. The last, last thing he wants to tell you here is don't be deterred. How, how do we live in this, this, this age? He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many will, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now he's definitely describing the age that we're currently living in, isn't he? In this age, right now, he says, you're going to experience roadblocks. And, and you're going to experience roadblocks without? People will persecute you? We just last week had a 5K to raise money to send to our brothers and sisters in Sudan who are being persecuted for their faith. 
This is going to happen. He says there's going to be roadblocks without and roadblocks within. Many will be lawless. They will not follow God. And their hearts will grow cold. He says the majority of people are not going to stick it out with Jesus. Don't you be one of those numbers. Because the promise is in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says there's joy on the other side. It's going to get rough. These tribulations are going to be hard. But stick with me. I'm telling you, I'm coming back. And it'll be worth it. And this gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. He says, do not be deterred by, by fear. Don't lose hope. Focus on the task at hand. Preach the promise that I will return. You see, again, the disciples are thinking, sweet, Jesus is here. Let's set up the kingdom right now. He's gonna, they're going to say the same thing in Acts after he raises. Is it now, Jesus? Are we setting up the kingdom now? But he's warning them here. It's going to get much worse before it gets better. I'm going to come back and make everything right. But in the meantime, there's going to be trials and tribulations. When you follow me, there's a road of suffering that leads to victory. Now remember, Jesus is answering about the end of the age and the sign of his coming. And he's also talking about the destruction of this temple. And that's where we turn to next. Number four, the destruction of the temple. Now everything Jesus has mentioned, he says they're evidences of the end. They're not evidences that the end is right now, but they're normal features of this, this age. However, there is something specific that they're supposed to anticipate and he gives them some very specific instructions of what to do when that comes. Look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand. He says, if you're an Old Testament reader, you know what I'm talking about and pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Now, to understand what's coming, and we read the book of Revelation, you cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding Daniel. It's riffing off of so much imagery from the Old Testament, specifically Daniel, that talks about this. And, and again, this is a prophecy. It says this is what's going to happen as we move toward this judgment. Now, in Daniel uh, chapter 11, verse 31, he talks about this specifically. Now, remember Jesus' word? He said, your house will be left to you desolate. This is where it comes back up. Verse 31, talking about a future king to come. Forces from him shall appear and profane, profane the holiness of the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. There's that word. And we don't have time to unpack what all of that means. But what we see is that I believe, and, and again, scholars are not all aligned on this, but I believe this abomination of desolation that Daniel predicted had actually, when Jesus was speaking this, this had already occurred between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the Greeks were running the world, their, their king, Antiochus Epiphanes, he marches into the temple with this idol of Zeus, and they sacrifice a pig on the altar. You could not have picked a more unclean, profane animal to put on their altar. And they fulfilled this prophecy in Daniel. But what do we say about telescoping? Right? Sometimes it's near, and sometimes it's far. And Jesus is again warning, history is going to repeat itself. And we see in 70 AD another abomination of desolation. This time, the Romans are in charge, and Titus, their current commander, emperor-to-be, once again marches into Jerusalem. 
and in the temple, and they set up and worship a false idol. This time it's the Roman banner called the Enzyme. And in that holy place, they profane the temple and then burn it to the ground. Just like Jesus said, not one stone will be left unturned. And everything that Jesus just said will happen, happens. War, famine, the destruction of the temple. And it's awful. The Roman army surrounds the city. They cut off supply lines. There's a mass famine. The people of Israel start eating their own children. And those who revolt just make it worse. Slaughter, and eventually over one million Jews lose their lives. Genocide. And what does Jesus say to do? When this comes, because this is coming, here's, here's my instruction. When you see this coming, this is what I want you to do, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, run away. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Just get out of there. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Why does he say to run? This is judgment for Israel's unbelief, their rejection of him as king. Now their tendency, and you can sympathize with this, as loyal Jews would have been to stay and fight, join the resistance. We're not gonna take it. No, we ain't gonna take it. Take it, the solo. Um, they might have even thought, there might have been a false messiah who said, let's go in and push back. And, and you can understand that they want to stand up for their people and their country, right? That's understandable. But Jesus says here, this messiah isn't leading that kind of a revolution. That's how you'll know the fakes. This is just like in, in, in the Old Testament with Sodom and Gomorrah when, when they were destroyed as a city. He said, run and do not look back. Remember the warning of Lot's wife who did so. And in fact, we see this come true before the temples burned down in, in AD 67, while many of the Jews were revolting, the, the believing ones who were following Jesus, the Christians, fled to the Pella Mountains and were spared because they obeyed Jesus's instructions here. And number five, we're going to see that only one knows when. Only one knows when. We're going to look forward now. The sticky part of Matthew 24, and thanks for hanging in with me. I know this is a thick one, okay? But one of the, one of the tricky parts about this chapter is that it's hard to know when is Jesus referring to like some of the things that are already, uh, will have, remember for them it's all future, but for us, when is he talking about the destruction of the temple, and when is he talking about that parousia when he comes back fully as king, and to try to parse that out, again, it's not just, he doesn't just say, this is the order, 24 is not just laid out chronologically, so it makes it hard for us, but he says, be aware, because you can know some signs. From the fig leaf, verse 32, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So he says, just like any good botanist knows, when the, when the branches are tender and leafy, right? In the words of Olaf, it's summer, right? Verse 33, he says, so also, just like you would know that, which I knew that, you should know that. Um, verse 33, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near, at the very gates. So when these things are near, when these things are, um, he, says it mean, he says it means he is near. What's he talking about? I think he's referring now again to the appearing. But wh what are these things? Well, what did he just mention in the first 28 verses? 
the trials and tribulations of this age. War, famine, temple destruction. Now, what he's, I believe what he's saying here is first these things will happen, then he is near. Again, Jesus is not saying that immediately following, right? We're not pinpointing an exact date, but he's talking about order. First, these, first tribulation and trial and suffering and pain, then the joys. Verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Great. Another easy one. Now, when Jesus says this, it's around 30 to 33 AD. So we know that he, he can't literally mean that that generation living at that time will, will not pass away until he comes back the second time. It has been thousands of years. That generation has come and gone. So what is he referring to? Well, a generation is about 40 years than it was back then, too. And so what do we know that did happen within 40 years while that generation was still alive? All the tribulations that he just talked about, war and famine, and the destruction of the temple, which was 70 AD, would have been within that generational timeline that he mentions. So this doesn't mean that there is, what, what he's simply saying is, I, I will, he doesn't say that, that his second coming will happen right after those things, but that my coming back will not happen until these things have taken place. These things first, and then me, if you're tracking. Before the joy of Jesus is revealing as king comes the birth pains. Suffering before joy. That's his point. Now some try to make this mean, oh, in the future, because there are some who, that abomination of desolation means this future tribulation that's to come still, and that will be a, a, the Antichrist that will be doing some of that profaning. And that they would say, well, once the tribulation starts, then those people in that generation won't pass away. Or some people would say, well, this, this generation that won't pass away is referring to all believers. And it's talking about the, the church age. But I, I really feel like you're doing some major Bible gymnastics to try to make it say that. I don't see that here as a normal reading of the text. In fact, Jesus says next, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, the parousia, when I come back, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He says, I don't even know. They say, well, wait a second. Jesus doesn't know the time? Isn't he God? Doesn't he know everything? Well, being fully man and fully God sure comes with its fair share of mysteries, doesn't it? We don't totally know. <laughs> We're on a need-to-know basis, and we don't need to know. But what we do know is Jesus surrendered many of his rights as God. Philippians 2, he emptied himself. And he trusted his father and his timing, just like you and I are called to do. Then Jesus compares his coming with the flood in Noah's day. He says there were a lot of people living it up, living as if there was going to be a tomorrow forever. And there was only one guy in his family that believed this coming judgment and prepared accordingly. And then, some of you guys will know these verses, verse 39, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. All right, and for some of us, a very popular series about the end times comes to mind as we're reading this, right? And you've been left behind. I wish we'd all been read. It was a cheerful song. Um, now, Raise your hand if you want to be left. Raise your hand if you want to be taken. All right, let me explain. When he says left here, 
What's he talking about? Well, at the time, when the Romans would siege Jerusalem, the ones who were taken were the ones who were made captives and prisoners of the Roman people. The ones who were left were actually the ones who were spared. So you all just said you want to go to judgment, right? So what, and we know this, even in the context, verse 39, and he's talking about the flood. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of man. Who, who's taken away? The ones in judgment. The ones who are spared, Noah, are the ones that are left. And, and you know, which, that's not a major in the major, but a lot of times we use this in the wrong context because we're thinking left behind means rapture that the Christians will be taken and the ones left behind are the non-Christians. Now, even whether or not you believe in the rapture, in context, that is not what Jesus is referring to in this passage right here. He's talking about judgment. So what's the point of all this? What do we take away from this passage? Well, this is where Jesus lands the plane. Be ready for his coming, verse six, or point number six. Be ready for his coming. Verse 42, therefore, in light of all this, in light of the sufferings that are coming, in light of my coming after those sufferings, here's the takeaway. Stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We don't know. That's the whole point. But know this. Here's what we can know. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, they had different watches where they would be, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So if I knew that tonight a burglar was going to come to my house, I wouldn't be zonked out with my breathe right strips, would I? I'm in, I'm in ninja, not, not like normal. <laughs> I'm, in my, I'm in my ninja mode, right? You're not going to touch Jill. They're going to be really intimidated by me. If I know that someone's going to be robbing me tonight, I'm going to act accordingly, right? I'm going to call the authorities. That's what I'm going to do. But what does it mean, then, to stay awake and be ready? Living in light of the fact that Jesus could return today. Have you ever thought about that? What does it look like to, to live in light of Jesus' return being imminent, meaning it's near? We don't know when, but we know it's imminent. Well, three things, and then we'll be done. Number one, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by what I call reading the tea leaves. And otherwise, try to look at these signs and determine a pinpoint, an exact date, or, or where exactly we're narrowing in on here. Now, we have been trying to predict when Jesus has come back ever since he left. You know how many times people have got it right? You know how many people have predicted it? A lot more than zero right? 88, 2012, like we keep missing it, right? And so we don't want to get caught up. A lot of people's fascination with prophecies and end times, I think is majoring on the wrong thing. We're trying to read the tea leaves and figure out exactly what, that's not the point. The point is that he's coming back. We need to live accordingly. Number two, don't get distracted by good but temporary things. Don't get distracted by good but temporary things. When he says the people in, in Noah's day, you know what he says they were doing? They were eating, drinking, and getting married. Are any of those things sinful in themselves? No. But eating, drinking, and getting married do not prepare you for a coming flood. The point is, they had not heard the warning and not prepared for the coming judgment. Only Noah had. Only Noah believed God's word and got ready by building an ark. So there's a lot of good things we can do today, and none of them are wrong. We can... Well, we can eat, drink, get married, have nice houses, invest into a 401k. None of those things are wrong in themselves. But if we're not prepared for the judgment, none of that matters. And by the way, being prepared doesn't mean that you fill your basement with gas cans and canned food. 
being prepared for the judgment means getting your heart right with Jesus. And this is what he says in the last point, number three, love his appearing, love his appearing. Um, when I was going to propose to Jill, I flew down to California, I snuck into her apartment and prepared for her coming. That's very creepy. Um, I got candles ready, I got, I got the, the, the flowers out, I had a piano, I was ready to serenade her, um, I had a ring in my pocket. I knew that she was coming, but I didn't know exactly when, so I had to be ready. So I had my, sh- my music up, and I was sweating like everything, and I'm ready for the moment she walked in that door, I'm going to start playing her song, and I- I'm prepared, right? Because what I don't want to do is be caught unprepared. That she, co- and I'm like, man, where is she? Like, she is delayed, she hasn't come back yet, so I'm like, you know what, I'll eat a couple of those chocolates that were for her, <laughs> and then I went, I will take a quick nap on the couch, and if she walks in, and I'm asleep on the couch with chocolate over my face, it's not going to go well, Right? Or worse, I'm like, maybe she's not coming back. I'm going to hop on Christian Mingle and look for someone else. And then she comes through the door, and I'm chatting with Bethany from Tulsa. There is a coming judgment, brothers and sisters. I need some food. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this. Oh, by the way, I was ready. And she said, yes, come on. And now, 2 Timothy 4.8, the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing, his parousia. There's the word. The ESV says those who loved his appearing. Listen, we don't know when he's coming back, but we know that he's coming back. And he says, I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready for my return. Listen, he says, it's going to get hard. When you follow me, there's wars and famines and earthquakes and people are going to hate you. And following Jesus is not easy. And living in this world, if we know anything in the last six months, it's rough. But he says, there's birth pains now. But that means there's joy coming in the morning. Hold on. This is a call to holiness. Know me. Walk with me. Stay on mission with me. Don't get distracted. Don't follow the false voices. Stay with me and proclaim the good news that I am coming back. Don't be driven by fear, but stand firm in love. So are we in the end times? Well, yes, in the sense that Jesus' return is near. And so let's live like it. This is a pretty heady chapter. Next week, we're going to unpack. In Matthew 25, he looks at some parables. We're going to say, okay, what does it actually look like to live as though he's coming back at any time? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. your word we thank you that you have revealed jesus to us that you've revealed everything we need to know to live this life and not just make it through but to be more than conquerors in jesus father we're living in tough times we have been since you left you promised us we would that also gives us the hope that you are still on the throne and you are still in control that you are coming back as the king to make it all right Father, I pray if there's somebody here today that has not, has not repented of their sin and claimed Jesus as king, that they would claim it today. There's eternity coming, and we don't know when that's coming, but there will be a point in time when it's too late. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have been following you. You promised that it's going to get hard, and we're going to be tempted to get off track, to listen to false voices, to get caught up with, with lesser goods and distractions. Father, may we as your disciples, may we focus 
May we cast our cares on you. May we hold on to the hope as you hold on to us and continue to be faithful to not just eat and drink and marry, but to be preparing for the coming judgment in our own lives and the way that we live and proclaiming to our neighbors, family, and friends around us and the end of this world, Jesus is coming soon. Father, we can claim as we're going to sing that it is well, even in the midst of our suffering today. And we can claim it is well, and it's going to be well when you come back and we see you face to face. Help us to live faithful in the meantime. May we be a church that's ready for you, so that when you come in judgment, it is not fear and running and hiding, but it is standing boldly, marching into your throne room by the grace and the spilled blood of Jesus. Prepare us, Lord. It's in your coming name we pray. Amen.